Well, today we are going to be uh, taking a bit of a break from First John. Uh, I'm going to because we are, and the reason why we're taking a break here is we're at the beginning of chapter four, and there's only two more chapters. There's chapters four and five, so we should manage to get through that in a month or so. And uh, so we're going to take a break from it uh, because this is my last Sunday before I go on holiday, and so it'll be a good place to pick back up. And also, I wanted to uh, follow up a little bit on what we had heard last week from Rodrigo about, uh, you know, these opportunities to, to put our feet, feet to our faith. And uh, if you remember from last week, if you weren't here, we had a special speaker who uh, is the head of a charity called All for Aid, uh, which does refugee work in uh, Lesbos, the island of Lesbos in Greece or near Greece, uh, in uh, uh, Romania, helping Ukrainian uh, refugees. And there's a third one that's just kind of gone out of my head at the moment. But, and one of the things that, that was part of that is that we can, if we want to, uh, participate in these uh, ministries and in these places of, of uh, worship, not worship, but of service in the name of Christ. So that's what we're going to pick up with. Because one of the places the church has struggled with over the last many, many centuries is the tension of works and faith. Our human nature has a tendency to want to earn our salvation, earn God's favor. And I think it's because, not so much because we, uh, you know, we want to do our part, but because we feel like if we can somehow earn it, then we can own it in such a way that it can't be taken away from us. This is my salvation. Kind of the same way people are very often about things like money. You know, I earned this, this is mine. Or, they, or about uh, something that they might own. I, I worked for it, I earn it, it's mine. We can often approach salvation in that same way. But we know, and I've, if you've been here any moment, any time at all, or if you've been in a Bible-believing church, you know that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace. What God has already done is what saves us. But at the same time, we're not saved in order just to sit back and do nothing. You know, we're not, uh, we're not, we're not saved to just wait around for our death in order to go be with God. And there's a passage in Ephesians which sums up these two tensions together. It says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that seems pretty clear. That it is by God's grace that we are saved. And how is that grace expressed? That grace is expressed, first of all, just by creation itself, allowing us to have life. But then that life, which had been fallen and broken by sin, was put back together, as it were, redeemed by Christ's work upon the cross, where he became sin for us, died upon the cross, and then rose again as the victor over sin and death. And we don't need to recreate that in any way. That has already been done. And if we by faith believe in this grace is expressed by God through Jesus Christ, we will be saved. It's not our works that do it. It's that faith in what God has already done. Then this follows up, though. The very next verse says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this seems pretty clear, how these two should go together, right? We're, we're saved by grace. We're saved by trusting in what God has already done. 
We can't change it. It's already done. It's in, the, it's in the past of history. You can't change the resurrection. You can't change the crucifixion. It's done. Jesus said it on the cross himself. It is finished. It's our belief in that that allows us to come to the place of trusting in what God has already done that leads us to our faith and our salvation. But once we are in this place of being saved, once we are in the place of being a new creation in Christ, we are then to affect the world around us in the name of Jesus Christ by doing things that are good. He calls them good works here, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, He has a plan for our life. He's had a plan for our life, and He wants to have us engage in that plan. But in spite of this clear direction from this passage and others, over the centuries, Christianity has struggled with this idea and how do these things go together. And oftentimes what we see today is you have some churches that are very strong in the idea of helping people and being loving in the way that they define love, but they're weak in their biblical doctrine. And we call this the social gospel in our little theological circles. And then you have other churches which seem to be more biblically sound in doctrine, but they can often come across as hard-edged and aren't as concerned about meeting the needs of people as they are making sure people believe the right thing. And this has become more evident in the last century. And it has profoundly affected the church and probably affects many of you in how you approach your faith. So what I want to start today with is a little bit of history with you. I want to share a little bit of history because, as many of you know, I'm a history uh, geek. Uh, this is kind of what I, uh, my theology was, my seminary degree was in church history and theology, because I've always found it interesting and important to understand where we are. We kind of have to understand how we got there. It helps us kind of unravel the mystery, and sometimes it exposes some of the things we believe and why we believe it and whether or not it's the right thing to believe. So I'm going to start with a little bit of history with you. Back in the 1920s, and this is a huge broad brush stroke of history here, and it doesn't go into all the details. It can't. We would be here for hours. But back in the 1920s, about 100 years ago, there was a movement mostly in Europe, very much, very strongly in the country I'm from, which is the United States, which later affects Africa and Asia and everywhere the gospel went because a lot of missionaries went out of Europe and especially the United States after the 1920s around the world. And it was a movement which split almost every denomination and led to a wide gap within Christians that still exist today. And it has profoundly affected the kingdom of God. And this was called the modernity movement. The modernity movement comes from the word, obviously, modern. Now remember, when it talks about modern and modernity, we're talking 100 years ago. So this is not necessarily last week or a few years ago. This really gets heavy and impacts the church in the 1920s and 30s. And this had been coming along for a long time. It had been coming since really the, the, the Age of Enlightenment or the rational movement that comes out of France in the mid-1700s, but it builds up and it hits the church in the 1920s. And the idea of modernity was that as human beings, we had so advanced in our scientific knowledge and in our rationality that truth should be discovered through the means of science. Truth needs to be discovered through the means of rationality. And truth no longer needs to be approached through the Bible or through faith or what some saw as, you know, superstition. 
And so one of the big things, you know, one of the big movements that was coming out during this time, for example, was the, the theory of evolution. This was a huge one that was impacting the church at this time. And to make a long story short, the result was, after this, is you had two camps of Christianity formed. Now again, there's a lot more nuance to this. I'm just kind of giving you the, a big overall. One camp said, after the impact of modernity, and it continued to form over the years, was that the Bible had some good moral truth in it, but that it was outdated. And it should not be taken literally. Things like the virgin birth didn't happen because you cannot rationally or scientifically explain that. The resurrection didn't really happen because you cannot rationally or scientifically explain that. The idea that the world was created by an intentional God was seen as quaint but foolish. And why? Why did they come to these conclusions? Well, because science precludes the belief in an act of God. And that's not a statement of philosophy. That's just how science tends to approach things. Science says, and I have a science background myself, science says, let's figure out the mechanisms of the material universe, and when we come to something that we don't know how it happened, let's not just step back and say, well, I guess God did it, and let's dig into it and figure out how this works. That's how science works. It doesn't mean that you can't believe in God and be a scientist. It's just this is how they approach the problems of figuring out the material universe. But people took that approach, and they, f they did make it into a philosophy. And if you uh, are here today and you're a scientist yourself, you know that among your colleagues that there is a certain faith aspect, or religious aspect almost, to the scientific process, where people have to go, well, we don't know how this happens. There's no way it adds up with, uh, like, for example, the idea that molecules just kind of magically came together and started producing proteins that could then bring about life. The odds of that happening by chance are literally astronomical. There are, more, there are fewer stars in the known universe than the chance of that happening. It's literally astronomical. But this is what the science tells us, that we just kind of magically come together. The, 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 the amino acids made protein chains that then began to make you know, proteins that led to life. And so there is a big faith element in rationalistic science. Right? This is there. But it, the way this affected the church, a certain camp, is that the conclusion was that the best thing we can take away from Jesus is that he was nice to people. And more than just nice, he was willing to sacrifice for people. He gave of himself, and as he gave of himself, we should also give of ourselves. Let me give you an example. How many of you have heard of Albert Schweitzer? A lot of you, right? There's an apotheca just down by, uh, uh, in, in Dusseldorf there that's named after him, right? He was a missionary and doctor. And this is what people don't realize, though, is he believed that Jesus was a failed Messiah. Did you know that? He believed that Jesus had good intentions. He was a, a strong moral leader, but that he got himself killed. And in that getting himself killed, he was a failed Messiah. The, the line that he wrote famously is that Jesus threw himself upon the wheel of history and was crushed by it. And there is no resurrection in Albert Schweitzer's theology. This is an example of the effect of modernity. He was a man that you, many of you probably thought of as a missionary. Yeah, but he didn't believe in the resurrected Jesus. 
He believed in a nice Jesus, a good Jesus, but ultimately a failed Messiah. And so over the years, this has kind of manifested itself by, by having this philosophy of saying, you know, we should just accept people as who they are, and we, we shouldn't hurt anybody as, as we define hurt. But the gospel, which means good news, is not about what you believe, but it's more about what you do. Are you doing nice and good things? Are you doing things which help humanity? And, really, and it's important that we do these things because the best hope for humanity is the goodness that is innate in all human beings and that human beings will lift up humanity. This is where the philosophy of humanism comes from. And of course, there's an atheistic aspect in humanism as well. You don't need God if, just, if you're just going to trust in the goodness of man. And the thing that is subversive about all this is most of this theology didn't come from scientists. It came from theologians. It came from people who were theologians in the church at the time because they felt like they, were, they didn't know how to argue back with all this rationalism that was coming and science that was coming. And so they just gave into it and said, well, I guess you guys are right. And so there were significant theologians that began to lead the church down this road. And the legacy we have that today is there's a true saying that people will say, and you hear a lot about it now, God is love. Well, it's true God is love. But God defines love. We don't define love. God defines His love. When we say God is love and we assume that we can define it ourselves, then we're like a toddler that tries to come up to the parent and say, this is what I want you to do because this is how I understand love. I want you to let me eat from the sugar bowl. I want you to let me play in the street. I want you to let me pretty much do whatever I want. I can open up my Christmas presents in June. I don't care because this is how I understand love. And actually, the truer, the truer illustration is we're a bunch of toddlers that don't believe we have a parent at all. And we just run around and we try to define among ourselves as toddlers what is love. And we leave the parent out of it altogether. That's one camp. The other camp, came out, which came out of the modernity movement, was a camp that stood fast in the Bible as the, as the truth of God, the Word of God. And that's the nicest way to put it because here's the truth. And this will hit home for some of you. It did for me. The truth is, Christianity was not prepared to deal with the arguments that were coming at them during the 1920s when it came to the modernity movement. They were not prepared to deal with how, does, how do we deal with this scientific uh, material which is being revealed. And so the way the church dealt with it is by basically saying, how dare you ask those questions? Don't you believe in the Bible? And they didn't push back by thinking. They pushed back by just throwing rhetoric at it. And it didn't work. It didn't work because thinking people said, well, wait a minute. Isn't the, isn't the church able to better explain to us what is being understood with the science going on around us? Now, let's remember, this is 1920s. This is 100 years ago. This is not, we're talking about, not talking about last week. So since then, and this is something that the society and the church doesn't really seem to understand, is that there have been many deep-thinking believers who took on the challenge and got deeply involved in some of these uh, sciences, like the science of archaeology, the science, uh, the science of biology, 
There have been Christians who have gotten deeply involved in these now and are able to give answers back. One reason why we can say the idea that a bunch of amino acids just randomly come together and start forming life, life-giving proteins is astronomical is because people who were believers got into it and began crunching the numbers and began researching it. There was a belief that the whole story about the, uh, the fall of the walls of Jericho was all made up and kind of mythologized by by the Old Testament because a lady who was an archaeologist, they found this huge ash layer in Jericho, but she chose some pottery and said, well, this pottery shows the timing is off. And everyone believed her until a believer, a Christian, wanted to figure out what is going on here. Is this true? He was actually, it was actually for him a journey of faith. He got into it and began to find all these pottery shards that had been sent to museums all around the world, and he documented every single one, and he realized that this lady had picked very specific shards of pottery in order to set this timeline that would go against what the scriptural timeline is, and that the vast majority of the pottery that had been found was actually within the scriptural timeline. And most people don't know that. They just assume what has been told to them is by, by the, the dogma of you know, the, archaeolo- the, the archaeological community or the dogma of the biological community is what you must believe. And understand, they act in dogma because they don't want to have their views changed because that would mean that their whole life work is going to go up in smoke if you realize that everything they've put everything into is not true. There was a guy who, you know, a biblical scholar who did this whole thing on this false, it was later found out to be a forged ending to the Gospel of Mark. If you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark kind of ends abruptly. And there was, this, there was this ending that was found. And it was found out to be a hoax. But this one guy, this one theologian, had put his entire career of building his whole historical theology around this false ending And when he found out it was false, the statement he made was very telling. He said, this cannot be false. Because if it is, it means my career has meant nothing. He just kind of like opened up a little bit of an insight of truth as to why he was willing to cling on to something that was false, to fight for a false dogma, because his entire career was built on it. Every book, every article, everything he had ever written for a career or over 30 years in academia was going to disappear. And he just he couldn't handle that because we're human. But during this time, during the modernity movement, the first reaction of the challenges of modernity by this particular camp was to ignore these issues and they strongly affirmed the fundamentals of the faith that they felt that modernity was challenging. And thus, these people were called the fundamentalists. And the fundamentals that they felt were being challenged were things like the creation of the world, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, but they didn't, they didn't define what inerrant meant, which led to a whole bunch of other discussions, and the rapture of the church. And so by this definition, I think many of you might go, oh my goodness, I'm a fundamentalist. And I I would say I'm a fundamentalist in that sense. But then what happened is that the word fundamentalist became equated with a kind of angry militancy. There was a lot of anger behind it. And a lot of Christians who believed in these fundamentals of the faith 
didn't identify with the anger. So then they changed their names to be known as the evangelicals. And they left behind the word fundamentalist because fundamentalist meant kind of, it had become sort of an angry tone. So they said, no, we're evangelicals. And it's interesting, within the last 10 years, evangelicals have kind of taken on this angry militancy. And now there's a group of people that are like, well, I don't know what I call myself. I guess I'm just a believer. And they've tended to focus very much on what you believe is way more important than what you do. And because you were setting aside deeds and you were, just, you were defining a person's Christianity only by what they believe, they tended to get into the very nitty-gritty aspects of the faith. For example, the whole discussion as to whether or not you believed in a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture was not even on the radar of discussion until after the 1920s. You had all kinds of different people that believed different stuff, but no one ever really used it as a point of contention. But when it became that you were defined strictly by belief, then these things became super important. And an example is when I was in a seminary, and they've changed this since then. I have to let them know. But there's a school called the Multnomah School of the Bible. It was a very well-known in our area, good Bible school, biblical. But when you graduated, the thing you had to sign a piece of paper that said that you believed in a pre-tribulation rapture in order to get your degree from the Bible school. And you think of all the things that are way more important, right? Like, do you believe in, you know, uh, the God of creation? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ? No. The way that they proved, that they felt that you rightly divided the Scripture was, do you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? And I found that so strange when, I, when the guy, one of my classmates who had graduated from the school told me that. And he was hardcore about it, too. He wasn't saying it in kind of like a, a, la a laughing way or a shaking his head way. He's like, yes, you must believe this. This is what is important. And when I asked him, well, what about these other more important things? Like, is Jesus the way, the truth, the life? No one comes to the Father except by him. He just kind of looked at me like I was crazy and kind of with some pity, too, because I was stupid. No, this is the important thing. And we also saw in, in the way that I was taught to evangelize Evangelism, back in the day for me, in my, when I was growing up in this very, you know, more conservative, and I love my, my Southern Baptist roots. I grew out of the Southern Baptist. I have no big issues with this. Well, I have some issues with them, but not any big issues with them. But I'm just reflecting on my own life. When we were taught to do evangelism, the goal was to get a person to say the sinner's prayer. A sinner's prayer is something like, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I repent of my sins, and I want to I turn to you, make you the Lord of my life. And that was the goal of evangelism. And if you get someone to say the right words, you're good. Because the words, saying the right words is what saved them. Now, you would, if you ask the person at that time, does saying these words save them? They'd say, no, you have to have a heart that goes into it. But we never addressed it. We were just all about getting the person to the place of prayer where they would repeat after you and they would be saved. It was about what you believe. We didn't, we didn't go back, we weren't taught to go back into their lives to see, is this a life that's changed? Is there, are their actions changing? Is there proof of Christ being in their life? Has the old gone and the new come? It's all about saying 
the words. It was about what you believe. It didn't matter what you did. So then this brings back to the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It says good news, that's what it was, but is it something we believe or is it something we do? And what's the answer to that? Well, it's both. It's both. It's important what you believe and it's important what you do. The book of James goes into this and it goes into this hard and it went into it so hard that some theologians didn't like James. Martin Luther famously did not like the book of James. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, did not like the book of James because he had gone from a very works-based faith to a grace-based faith, and he felt like James was somewhere in the middle, and he didn't like that. It's like a reformed alcoholic will be the one that tells you, you know, that someone's just a total drunk, and then they become a non-alcoholic, and they'll like, like start telling everyone you shouldn't drink at all. Martin Luther was a reformed works-based faith guy. And when he became a, understood grace, he didn't like James because he felt like James was bringing these ideas together, and it made him uncomfortable. He called it the epistle of straw. And he, used, and then he took that from the whole thing where you build your faith either with precious stones and metals or of wood, hay, and straw. And he's like, if you try and build your life on the epistle of James, it is the epistle of straw. But I think most of us can look into it and say James understood that faith without works is dead. And that's what he says, the body without the spirit is dead, and so faith without works is dead. And this idea of faith without works being dead speaks to those people who are concerned with having the right doctrine but don't really care about how it's lived out. And this was something that was going on early in the church, and that's what James is approaching. But I have to tell you, I also believe that deeds without faith is dead. Faith without works is dead, but works without faith is also dead. I came to this conclusion personally, this is my personal conclusion, when I was in the Peace Corps. People, people sometimes misunderstand the Peace Corps. They think that it was a missionary organization. The Peace Corps in the United States is not a missionary organization. It's a government thing. You go and you're representing the government, but instead of being the Marine Corps, ah, you're the Peace Corps. And you go and you teach and you do peaceful stuff. And that's when Cindy and I were in the Peace Corps. And I taught school. Cindy taught, she trained teachers. I taught English and agriculture. But one day I was out there in, the, in a field trying to get stuff to grow. <laughs> I had to run a school farm in the middle of an epic, historic at that time drought, which was, I just felt like I was just failing all the time. And uh, one day it finally began to rain and I had to get some fertilizer on the field. And I didn't have a real fertilizer spreader. I took a bag of chemical fertilizer. I'm just throwing this stuff in the field and lightning's going on around me and the villagers are just watching me going, huh, this guy's going to get hit by lightning. You know, those crazy idiots out there. And I was frustrated and angry. And uh, that it was just, I just was failing so badly <laughs> at taking all my 20th century uh, agricultural knowledge into Lesotho and just having it fall flat on its face. And I felt the Holy Spirit of God saying, you know what? No one even knows where this country is except for the people that live in it. And everything you're doing and all the stuff you think is so important, without me, it doesn't really matter. Because I could teach a kid English, and I could teach a kid agriculture, but if they don't know Christ, ultimately, it really is meaningless. You can't grow a garden in hell. And I don't know what language you speak in hell, other than, ah! You know? Haven't ever been there. Hope never to visit. 
But I do know that deeds without faith is just as dead as faith without deeds. And so this believe and do aspect of our faith is to be applied to our lives personally. And I think it's important to understand the greater context of what James says here. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And sometimes people will want to jump into that and say, oh, but, but the do that he's talking about is the work of the evangelist. That is part of it, but we'll go a little bit deeper into this. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intensely into the perfect law that gives freedom, the law of love, Christ's command, love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. What is this passage talking about? This passage is talking about the life transformation that being in a relationship with the living God should bring about in our life. And I've found over the years that knowing the word but not living the word is, and not involving ourselves in the world around us, following the model of Christ, who is the very embodiment of the word made flesh, who then went into this fallen and broken world and associated with people that the religious folk of his time went, Mm-mm, you shouldn't associate with them. The prostitutes, the tax collectors. And if you work for the tax collecting agency in Germany, it's not that every tax collector is evil, but at that time, the tax collectors were part of the oppressive Roman government. They were a tool of oppression, and yet Christ went to them. Zacchaeus is probably the most famous example we have in the Bible. But if we claim to know the word, but we do not do the word, it is extremely damaging to the reputation of Christ and to the world. And why is that? Well, because it's the personal one-on-one encounter is how most people come to know Christ. People don't very often come to church looking for Christ, just cold. People will sometimes come to church as unbelievers to hear the the gospel message preached, but it's because they were invited by someone they knew or they were invited by someone who they trusted enough to know that this invitation doesn't have some kind of weird ulterior motive to it. It's just an invitation to hear. Very few people just show up. It happens, but it's rare. Most people come to know Christ through a personal one-on-one encounter. And it takes time, too. It takes time to build that that trust that allows them to really hear the gospel message. And your life matters when it comes to the gospel message. How you live your life matters when it comes to the gospel message. And if someone hears someone that has lots of knowledge but no love, lots of knowledge but they just stand on the sidelines with their arms crossed and throw stones at people that they think are theologically unsound but they don't lift a finger themselves, to help anybody out, then they are the very definition of Pharisee, as Jesus defined Pharisee, as those who sit in the seat of Moses, but you should not, and you should listen to what they teach, but you should not do what they do, because why? They bind heavy burdens upon the backs of people, and they do not lift a finger to help them. That is Jesus' definition of Pharisee. And there's a lot of pharisaical spirit in the church, where people know a lot, and expect a lot, but don't do anything to help. And when people figure that out, because people 
are messed up and they're broken, but not, not a lot of them are really stupid. Most people actually have a pretty decent functioning brain. It can get all over the place. It can be misled, but they can see through that. And it's damaging to the church and to Christ. And in contrast, a person that is like doing all these nice things, but they have no context to it. They just kind of run out and do nice things. They're beloved because they're very nice people by the world, but they don't really move the world in any direction. Because even Jesus knew everybody he healed, everybody he healed eventually died. Everybody he fed eventually got hungry. Those moments of the miracles where he healed people and where he fed the 5,000, those were great moments, but without a context that this is a manifestation of God's grace being poured out where he may heal your body, but the more important thing is to heal the soul, or he may feed the body, but the more important thing is to understand who is the ultimate bread of life. Without that context, it's just something, it's a good, nice thing that passes and doesn't change anyone's life. And so this aspect is what James gets into more deeply. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds, can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. So now, for those that want to say, well, the work that, that James is talking about is just the work of making sure people are doctrinally correct. No. Suppose a sister or brother or sister is without food or clothes. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. In other words, you have the right words. But does nothing about his physical needs? What good is it? And in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And some of you say, well, I have faith. you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, we can, we can operate in these different spheres. We can operate in the sphere of faith and, and believing the right thing or operate in the sphere of doing the right thing. And James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, they must come together. If they're not coming together, something is out of whack. Something is wrong. And if we're going to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ in our lives, we can't get away from the fact that Jesus addressed the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs to those around him. He knew that a hungry man or a hurting woman or a lonely child wasn't going to hear that God loved them until he manifested that somehow and showed them the love of God. One of the most influential people in my life, you know, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes the most influential people in our spiritual lives are people that just said, one or two things that stuck with us forever. You know, it wasn't necessarily the, uh, a big, long thing, but it was one or two things. And there's this lady, I was a summer missionary in Houston, Texas. And you think, why in the world do you need missionaries in Houston, Texas? And it was to do basically a, a ministry uh, in the a food and clothing ministry in the poor area of, of Houston. And I remember going there. I remember when I was selected to go to Houston, I was disappointed because I felt like, why am I going to Houston? Houston has plenty of believers. It's like the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Why am I going to Houston? And this lady, she had this ministry, and I remember kind of looking at her, and I, I don't understand why we're even doing this. And she just made a statement, and she said, if we're not able to provide people with the physical bread, then they'll never hear about the spiritual bread because we can tell them the truth, of the spiritual bread of Christ, but if their stomach is growling, they are in pain with hunger. 
they're going to be focusing on that. So we need to be able to use the, the things like food ministries, healing ministries, building these houses in Turkey, using these things as avenues to sharing the good news of God's love. Without it, faith without deeds is dead. And that's what Jesus did. He fed, he healed, he loved, and he told them the truth that transformed his life. And this is kind of the ultimate thing of understanding this whole sermon here. Transforming the world around us is the natural outcome of a life that's been transformed by Christ. If your life has been transformed by Christ, then by nature you can't look around and go, well, everything else is fine because you feel uncomfortable in a world that is not also touched and transformed by Christ. And so you will try and transform it. You'll do what you can to be involved. And the challenge for us is remaining biblical in our beliefs while engaging in a fallen world. Because a fallen world is a seductive world. You know, when Jesus, I think we read some of these passages sometimes where they shake their heads at Jesus because he hangs out with the tax collectors and prostitutes. But would you be comfortable if you saw me down, I don't know where the, prosti- I don't know where the prostitutes are, thankfully, in Dusseldorf, but say I, I did, and you saw me hanging out there. Would your first thought be, oh, Pastor Jeff is reaching out to the prostitutes? Or would your first thought be, hmm, hmm, get out my little phone? (laughs) It's a seductive world, and Jesus was right in the midst of that pain and of that hurt and of that brokenness, and people found it unseemly. But he went there because that's where the hurt was. That's where the need was. And he didn't just embrace them and be nice. He challenged them. Remember the lady that was caught in adultery? And said one of the best, you know, the stories we just love, you know, and he starts writing in the dirt and all the people go away and he asks her, who is there to accuse you? She says, no one. And Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He says, you're right, and I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. He calls it out that she had been in a place of sin. You're like, where's the guy? Exactly. Who knows? But he doesn't just say, pat her on the head and say, it's all okay. God is love, and therefore you don't need to change your life or transform it. He tells her, go and sin no more. So the challenge for us is to remain in this place of biblical in our beliefs, but to be engaged with the world at the same time. Because standing on the sidelines of the world with our arms crossed, refusing to engage, that's not Christ-like. The very word becoming flesh dwelling among us was the very, I mean, it was the model of God's engagement with a broken world. And one of the things that I do admire, and I'm thankful about both the churches I've pastored. I've only pastored two churches. I've been a pastor for over 25 years now. But it's only been with two churches. And one of the things that I admire is that a lot of the people within the churches seem to get that. When I was in Oregon, one of the things that, you know, how things just kind of snowball, and you don't really know why things are happening, but they do. One of the things that happened in our church in Oregon was a bunch of people got involved with being foster parents because the foster parenting system is a corrupt one. It's a broken one. There's a lot of abuse within the system. And we had a lady in our church that worked with Department of Human Services, and she figured this out, and so she started to become a foster parent herself so these kids can go from an abusive situation to a safe situation instead of from an abusive situation very often into another abusive situation. And the snowball effect was a bunch of people in the church started being foster parents. They fostered little children. They fostered teenagers, which was extremely hard. 
But the whole thing, it sounds like it's all romantic and fluffy, but it was tough. It was disappointing at times. But a lot of those kids had their lives oriented towards Christ for the first time. And they lived with people who had love and faith. Faith which told these kids, it's not okay for you to do the things you've been doing. And a lot of it was pretty bad. But we love you and we're going to give you a place to have a place to lay your head. We're going to give you food to eat. And we're going to have people that are engaged with your humanity, engaged with your soul, not just using you as a way to make money. And it changed people. And it was inspiring. It was inspiring to me. At IBCD, I think the homeless ministry that Fiona started years ago, it's good for the soul of the church. And some of you are involved in this ministry. It's good for us to have a place where we go out and we put feet to our faith. And if you would like to be involved in the homeless ministry, and you talk to Fiona, you can go onto our app. She also needs someone that's willing to take up more of the burden because she takes a lot of time organizing everything, putting it together. She's more often on the streets than she can be in the church, not because she wants to be, not because she doesn't want to come to the service, but because someone needs to put it all together. And she needs someone else to walk in leadership with her that can take some of that so that she can be more involved also in the community of faith. But it's good for our soul as a church. These guys that went off to Turkey, I was super happy to see that some folks, after Pashali shared the idea that the need for this thing going on in Turkey, they stepped up and they were part of that. That speaks of the health of the church. After last Sunday, I know there's a group of ladies that were talking about going to the refugee center in Lesbos to help out with the refugees there. And you'd say, you could be cynical and say, how is handing out toiletries and helping women pick out clothes in any way sharing the gospel? Well, how is healing people sharing the gospel? How is feeding people sharing the gospel? Because that's what Jesus did. It opens the door. Now, without the context of faith, it's just a nice thing being done. Absolutely, you're right. Within the context of faith, it can change lives. And that's what Jesus did. That's what we are called to do. Faith without deeds is dead. Deeds without faith is dead. What the kingdom of God needs, according to Bonhoeffer, aren't just more Christians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in the 40s, what the church needs are deeper Christians. Deeper, weightier Christians who are willing to engage the world in the name of Jesus Christ. It comes at a price sometimes. Famously, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died two weeks before the Second World War ended. But his legacy of sharing what the cost of discipleship really means still lives today, and he is in eternity with God. Faith without deeds is dead. Deeds without faith is dead. We need the weightier Christians who are willing to engage the world in the name of Jesus Christ. We have opportunities to do that at IBCD. That's one reason why I asked Rodrigo to come. Pashali just brought the opportunity for Turkey. We have in place already this thing that Fiona does with the homeless. If you are feeling like your faith is somehow lacking feet, here are opportunities to engage. Do so. 
in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, and we thank you for the depth of your word. And Lord, I lift up to you our brothers and sisters who are uh, on the way back from Turkey right now and the brothers that are going to Turkey right now. I thank you and praise you for the work that you've done in the hearts of many people in this congregation because of the homeless ministry. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to be a church that doesn't just come into the forest here and isolate ourselves from the world around us, but that we are people that engage. And not just engage in our own goodness and our own strength, but engage because of who you are and because of what you've done. May we live lives that transform the world around us because we have been transformed by your Spirit. And Father, as we come into difficult times where people don't agree with our points of view, may we go at it with the same Spirit that Christ himself went at it. Engaging anyway. Loving anyway. Correcting anyway. Even though there was pushback. But doing so, as the Scripture tells us, to have an answer for the reason for the hope that we have, to answer with gentleness and respect, but to answer. And in so doing, be agents of transformation as ambassadors of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.